today changes my whole entire life. Welcome to Gritability, a podcast about the power of perseverance, overcoming seemingly insurmountable odds to attain the life of your dreams. I'm your podcast host, Adam Clausen, and with me is the beautiful and extraordinary Ro Clausen. Good morning. I am so excited for this episode today. Me too. So <laughs> joining us today, we have one of my closest, dearest friends, uh, you're going to hear a little bit about how that relationship started, but I want to introduce Mr. Keith Maurice James. <laughs> Hello, everyone. How are you? Oh, we're doing phenomenal this morning. So appreciate you taking out the time, joining us from where are you and what are you doing right now? Well, I am in Baltimore, Maryland. I am currently in my office, and um, I am the director of operations for Outpatient Mental Health Center here in Baltimore, and I'm just taking a pause to spend a, a few moments with two of the most beautiful people I know in the world, inside and out. Oh, my goodness. This is why this was <laughs> going to be my favorite episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, I love you guys and you're two of my favorite people in the whole entire world. And I, not only do I love you individually, I love you guys together. And I'm so excited for the podcast to hear your story. Well, I am equally as excited. So let's kick this off by giving a little bit of background here. So Keith and I um, actually met each other on the inside met each other while I was serving that outrageous 213 year sentence. And it was at a period where there still really wasn't much chance of my release. Our relationship was still, this was, uh, let's say the early years. Um, and we were being introduced to really just a multitude of incredible people and supports and learning like this was just a period of hyper growth for me and I credit it and I always say this it's about the relationships that I've been able to cultivate and Keith Keith was at the top of that list like very similar I would not be who I am today if it was not for uh, me meeting Keith and having him as a brother, as a friend, as a support, like incredible. And we talk about, you know, being in prison, like it's almost like going off to war, um, to use that analogy, because we had a very clear mission um, and faced like incredible opposition um, from all around us. And I believe that it's because of that, that, you know, external force really brought us even closer together and allowed us to cultivate a relationship, uh, especially in that environment that was highly unusual for a number of reasons, which we'll get into in a little bit. But I want to turn things over to Keith and allow him to give a little bit of his background, kind of get us up to speed on you know, how you and I actually met and ultimately kind of leading up to 
where you are today? Absolutely. Um, I, I guess the first thing that, that stands out to me um, in an ironic way was um, Professor Gaskew. And at that time when Adam and I were together, he always had a phrase or a quote that he would say to us um, that you guys need to own your narrative. And so having multiple opportunities to actually share my narrative, I, my brain starts to go crazy thinking, okay, I have this 15 minutes of fame. What do I say? How's it going to be most impactful? What part of me do I share? Because obviously the story is so extensive and my life has been so extensive that um, you sort of have to pick and choose how to be succinct in explaining things. But um, when Adam and I met, it was specifically because Adam was somewhat of a gatekeeper, I would say, with a couple of other gentlemen who I hold dear as well to a program that was taking gentlemen inside of a carceral environment and actually giving them an opportunity to become certified life coaches. And in order to become a part of this program, I had to interview with Adam and a gentleman uh, by the name of Cantu at that time. And the most uh, memorable aspect of that interview, that encounter was that by the end of it, I think all three of us had tears rolling down our faces because the conversation had become so intimate and so engrossed in the details of um, just the power of the human spirit and a desire to grow and change and be different and a desire to get engaged in something that would allow us to help other people change their lives as we were transforming and metamorphing into um, the new people that we desire to become. So with that being said, um, Prior to meeting these gentlemen, I sort of had made up my mind that I wanted to do something different and I wasn't sure exactly how I was going to make substantive change in my life. But my desire for that change, I think the universe brought me together with um, with Adam and with um, quite a few other people who were influential in my life and changed me in such a way that now as I transition back into um, society, um, which has now been not quite three years. Um, I am the director of an outpatient mental health center in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, my life is thriving. The most important aspect of my life is my children. I have six children, four grandchildren, and my 94-year-old father for whom I am a caregiver that lives at home with me. And my life is just chock full of what Adam was talking about, various relationships that sort of define my everyday movement. And despite or along with all that, I'm still working and Adam and I together and Adam and I separately on our own um, individual uh, journeys, missions to to do more, to be more, to create more. So that individuals who are going through some of the same experiences that we had to go through will have an opportunity to flourish the way we're attempting to continue to flourish and evolve. So um, I'm excited to have this conversation, um, gridability. <laughs> And true grit is one um, subject that I think I am a subject matter expert on. And I would love to see, I can't wait to see where this conversation organically unfolds. Something that I want to respond to that you said that gave me chills. And I think it's a huge takeaway for our audience is you said the phrase, own your narrative. And I think we're living in a world now in most recent years that we all have the ability now to 
be so open with our narrative and put it out there and people are so accepting. It wasn't yeah. that long ago that we all, or at least me, the way that I was raised and the way that I felt society was looking at me kind of had to hide things in the closet, you know, prison wife Ooh. or the fact that you guys did time. A lot of times we shoved that away, but that's such a huge part of our stories and the fact that we developed gritability through that narrative that I just needed to take a moment to really shine a light on the fact that you said own your narrative tell your story don't hide it in the closet because now it's a way that we can connect with one another and the way that we can show our credibility and it's a gift that we can give to our children or the people that look up to us you know share it show it and then use it as a way to catapult yourself moving forward undoubtedly yeah well put um Roe and I have shared a number of the challenges that we faced in, in our relationship and given it from that perspective, like being out in the visiting room, having officers trying to cancel our visits. Um, there, was a, there was a lot that we had to deal with. Um, but there was equally, if not more, on a day-to-day -day basis that Keith mm -hmm. and I, uh, the opposition that we faced, and it came from two different fronts, right? <laughs> First, it came from our peers, right? Mm -hmm. That was the unlikely opposition that we received because not everybody was on board with what we were doing. You know, change is always difficult. It's always challenging and it's frightening to a lot of people. And what we were doing so went against the norms of the prison culture that it scared a lot of our peers and the open, honest conversations that we were willing to have with each other to be completely transparent, to bear ourselves like that just does not happen. The reason it was able to happen was because of the physical space that was carved out for us. And mm -hmm. then us being there, like genuinely being there in support of one another in trying on new ways of being, doing things that we had never done before. That takes such a level of courage. And I wanna applaud Keith because when Keith came in, like we were at the beginning, we were trying to get this thing going. We're meeting all this opposition, right? Like people are angry. Like you guys shouldn't be doing what you're doing, man. You need to stop. And it's, you're around staff too often. And all of these things, they're like, we're like, man, this is, this is what we need to do to carve out this space for what's best for all of us. And Keith, when he came in, he's like, I want in, I want to be a part of that. And I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> You're coming at the height of this opposition. Uh, and I don't think that we could have overcome that, especially from our peers at this time. So I want to, I want to start with that. Do you remember what that felt like that early opposition? Well, yeah, let me let me and let me say this because I, I um I think that the opposition of which you speak and, and you really highlighted the uh, I guess the circumstantial opposition in the realms of what we were trying to do and those folks that were opposed to it as as a system of change and um but if you want to talk about true grit, if you want to talk about going against the odds, if you want to talk about challenging everything that is. I think it would, we would be remiss if we did not uh, highlight where we were and the culture of where we were, because 
in that particular environment, especially on the federal level, there's a uh, multi-dimensional uh, racial divide. You know, every single race and culture of individuals in that setting, there was this, un, I was going to say unspoken, but there was a spoken, there was an overt rule that you only um, ate with, you only communed with, you only fellowshiped with your own people. And so what we were doing was not only um, earth shattering to the culture and in, in the realms of the, the academic side of it, the, the, the internal chain side of it, but the fact that we were able to come together despite the odds and be a, a, a black man in that environment and a, a white man in that environment. And, and, you know, I know it's scary. A lot of people don't like to bring forward the, the issue of race. It's like a subject that people start to cower when you bring up. Um, but can you imagine having to address that issue in the realm of um, really violent, really mentally conditioned people who really didn't understand what it meant to to blur or erase that demarcation line between who this environment said we were and determined that we're gonna connect on a human level. And that was the only way that we could possibly forge forward and do things in the way that we could. We had to erase that line. And so doing was dangerous. Let's, you know, I want to, I want to always in owning my narrative, um, make sure that we're very, very clear and that we do not sugarcoat this in any way. It was dangerous, um, almost fatally dangerous to take the risks that we took to connect the way we connected and create a whole new brotherhood that was based upon love, compassion, um, determination, and, and a brotherhood of individuals who just wanted to be better people. And we connected in a place, and I think that's why our relationship um, as it is today and as it always will be, will always be able to um, surmount any obstacle. So how did how did you do it? How did you blur and then erase those very very defined lines? Mm. How? Yeah, I almost want to say we just closed our eyes and ran forward. <laughs> <laughs> there, there were times that we did that. We actually did that on the rec yard, but that's a different story. <laughs> that's another story. <laughs> I want I want to talk about very strategic efforts on our part to cross those lines to do it intentionally yes. man to make some people very very uncomfortable you know i was all too happy to come over and join you in the baltimore dc section you want to talk yeah. about that yeah absolutely absolutely as a matter of fact it was um adam myself and there was a mexican uh gentleman who uh, were sort of at the crux of the core of what we were doing at that time, and it created a really tight friendship. And every time we walked into, and that's where the the chow hall or cafeteria was the place where the it the divide was so obvious, because when you walked in there, you looked around and you could see where every single section of every single race of every single culture had its own table, and had subdivided. And so we like I said earlier, almost with our eyes closed, forging forward, we would just go. We would pick a table. Who are we going to agitate today? You know, we gonna go. <laughs> so the very first time you just closed your eyes, went and picked a table, and the uh -huh. three of you sat together, what was that response? Listen, 
it was almost as though the whole cafeteria got quiet. <laughs> I can imagine. No, it did for real. Yeah, got I bet. Quiet. And people looked, and um, you know, and and we were a bit nervous, you know. Let's be honest, because yeah. it was a, and a dangerous, challenging thing to do, but we just did it. And when it happened, you know, um, our, our friend uh, Cantu, he was always a jokester, so he would throw a joke out. And it would relax people a little bit. Or uh, Adam would ask me about a neighborhood in uh, Baltimore. So when he sat down and people gave him a funny look, he would, you know, say, well, what's wrong? I'm from Edmonton Avenue, you know, and, and it would lighten the the mood just a bit. Because, you know, what does Adam know about Edmonton Avenue? But it, and it was strategic. It was a way of approaching it where we had to sort of inculcate the minds of the folks around us in such a way that um, we started to normalize that connectivity that um, transcended race and culture. Um, but it was scary. It was really scary. Um, but but we faced it. We faced our fears. You know, we faced those false expectations that appeared real. And, and we got a different result than what we had expected because then it became normal. It became so normal that um, other people began comfortable. They began getting comfortable testing it out and trying and seeing if, hey, look, can we do something a little different? And you know, I have a friend who's of a different race. I really would love to sit with him. I'm gonna go try it. If Keith and Adam can do it, we definitely can. Uh, and then there were times where we've sat at tables and some of the folks, um, because of the respect that um, myself and, and, and Adam uh, demanded, um, they knew they weren't gonna fight against us. They could see the, the hard drawn lines of determination on our brow, but we've sat at tables and have seen guys get up and walk away you know, almost in disgust, you True. know, and we, we just shook our heads and, and pitied their absurdities and continue to do what we were doing. I love that we're having this conversation because often Adam says on the podcast how there were things done at McKean that had never been done prior and unfortunately things that haven't been able to be done since. So mm -hmm. I'm so glad you're here telling the story from your perspective, from the inside perspective. So, okay, so you broke those lines, you know, they're gone and erased, even though it was kind of scary and some people weren't on board, but most people were, then what? What were you able to do from there? So one of the big things I think that we were able to do was pique the curiosity of the folks around us, because then they, they, they you start to wonder, they, they, and let me tell you something. People think and process things on a deeper, more intellectual level than I think they even realize their processes are taking them. Because it, it, doing what we did the way that we do it and did it and having the audacity to challenge a whole culture um, ultimately began to create a paradigm shift. And, and that shift began to make people say, whether it was consciously or subconsciously, what's so powerful about what they're doing that they're willing to risk everything in order to make sure that they have the platform to do it. And then following that question up with a desire to say, whatever it is, it has to be serious enough um, and beneficial enough. Um, I want some. And so they would ask, they would ask questions. What are you guys doing? What's going on in there? What's, what's in that going on in that secret classroom in the back of education? Um, I, I want to participate. Sign me up. And people began to sign up in droves. And one thing that we noticed and we were extremely excited about because there's a, a lot of gang activity in that environment, but a lot of the heads and leaders of those gangs wanted to get involved. And 
as with any organization, if the head goes a certain way, the rest of the body or organization will follow. And so when those people and those folks with uh, a leadership dynamic began to get engaged in what we were doing, everything, everyone started to follow. And then like, um, desiring education, desiring change, desiring uh, self-awareness and self-understanding became a new norm. Mm, well put. And I would say um, a lot of people, and not just in that environment, but in life, are looking for permission. They're looking for someone else in a position of influence to do something that opens the door to allow them to do it because in their heart it's what they want to do as well they just don't they don't want to be the one to cross that boundary right but as soon as someone else does it and and here's a key point when it's someone in a position of influence and mm -hmm. as as keith expressed you know uh, a few moments ago we were fortunate to be in those positions of influence where we had a level of respect, a level of credibility amongst our peers, amongst each of our cultures, to where when we stepped out and did that, they didn't, the opposition was there. Like not everybody was happy. Let me just be very clear, right? But it was how they responded. They knew that there was a line and they respected us enough to say, mm, we don't really like this, but we're, we're, we're not going to get in the middle of it. And by doing that, more and more people gravitated towards what we were doing. And then as we carved out space, and I've talked about this previously, physical space, real estate in prison, whew, <laughs> it is so valuable. So that classroom that Keith was talking about in the back, when we used to be back there, you know, it started as, well, those guys back in that classroom to the next thing you know, it's, man, all of those guys are trying to get in that classroom to becoming an entire, we ended up taking over a whole office space. Mm. I mean, you want to talk about firsts, that has never happened in prison where they say, man, you guys are doing so incredible. We're going to open up a building and let you guys up there to continue doing your thing so that all these people that want to be involved have space to go. Yes. How incredible yeah. was that? And mind you, as um, you stated when you started off, you, you mentioned two sides to this. So all that we expressed, that was just the one side. Mm -hmm. And that was from amongst our peers. And that wasn't even from the, the, the opposition we received from those in positions of power, because then that's a whole other story to tell. Tell it. <laughs> <laughs> you heard her. Yeah. We want to know. So it's, I, I, it's hard to even, I guess, choreograph in my mind where to begin to ensure that I, I, I convey what was taking place here because we met opposition with our peers and we were able to navigate through that with with a, a degree of ease because these are folks that we've been dealing with all our life. Um, these are folks who are similar to us. These are folks whose mindsets we 
have had. So it's easy to know how to address individuals who are thinking in ways that you have thought because you know how those processes go. So in steps, the people with the position of power, in steps, the people who, like when we talk about real estate, who hold the keys to all the real estate, here's uh, a situation where we are receiving opposition from the individuals who determine whether or not we're even going to step out of our eight by 10 cell that day or not. And if they feel that what we're doing is so evolutionary that it's putting their job security at risk, then just imagine what they would do and what lamps they would go to to slow it down. And so then we had to figure out how do we infiltrate, you know, since we you use the term of war and preparing for war, how do we infiltrate that front to find allies on the other side who would be willing to risk everything to go against the culture of their peers the same way we went against the culture of our peers and then we together could merge to create a brand new culture because it had to happen from both sides because i don't care how much we were able to shift the dynamic or shift the paradigm or shift the mindset of our own peers um really all of that was was pointless energy if those people that were in total control of the environment and the situation didn't somehow, some way, find some degree of buy-in and permit us to have the space to do the things that we needed to do. And when I, and, and you know what, that sounds kind of general. I'm talking about when we tried to get into the education building and getting into certain classrooms and certain uh, correctional officers or prison staff would just tell us, no, no, you're not permitted there today. You know, go out there and try to send us off in areas out on the rec yard where the 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 sound decibel was so increased that we wouldn't even have the, the sacred space to be able to have the discussions that we were trying to have or to just um, completely shut departments down at different times or to um, slow down or, or curtail some of the material that we may need to have access to or the, the computer systems that were in, in an internal network that we were working on as we were developing curriculums and the likes. Um, you know, the story just goes on and on, but we managed to find a way to, um, uh, a way to get those, those individuals or a few key individuals on that side. And just like Adam mentioned about, um, us having a level or degree of influence, we had we knew that we had to approach those folks on that side who had influence and get them to have buy-in and to believe in us, even though they had um they they were trained, they were ingrained with the idea of not believing anything that we ever said. But we did it and we we found allies and in so doing, we were able to create a lot of uh, momentum in all that we were doing. And, and I, I look at and I talk to a lot of the guys who were the recipients of a lot of the things that we developed and um, we've changed lives. Absolutely, you changed lives. And from the outside looking in, because I lived through this, you know, I would get the calls and the emails and I'd hear all about it and visit and I loved it. But it was also really frustrating to hear the perspective of that side of it, of staff, you know, giving opposition. And the fact that, I mean, from my perspective, it was, you know, ego. And I don't mean like the cocky version of ego. I mean, the insecure version of ego that you guys were doing things to better the environment. And it was, you were always faced with opposition. And just sitting here listening to you speak, it felt like you guys were literally playing a chess game 
all day, <laughs> every day, having to be five steps ahead of everybody, not only staff, but your peers. And obviously just listening to you guys talk, you're very, very, very intellectual people, but I can't even imagine the stress of knowing that they literally, I mean, held the keys that unlocked the door, but they also held the keys that could have pulled the plug on your program at yeah. any moment. And then on the other end, you know, there could have been a riot at any moment had you guys yeah. made the wrong move. So just the fact, like knowing all of that and the fact that you were able to, I don't want to say glide through it because there was a lot going on at all times, but you were able to be as successful as you were through all of that, my God, the grit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Un unbelievable. And as you were just, you know, describing that, you'll remember this situation. And it was one of those key moments. Um, you know, I often say that so many things had to align for me to be here today. Things that had to work out. And like those also near misses where one of these staff members could have very easily ruined everything that we had worked for simply out of spite. That was a very real possibility. And there were a few in particular who were, they openly opposed what we were doing. We were talking about mm -hmm. one on the way here. Like we were warned. Ro got a phone call from another outside community partner who called to warn her and said, hey, um, tell him he needs to be very, very careful of this person because this person has it out for him and like, I'm worried about him. Uh, mm. How do you think that made, how did that make you feel to get that phone call and to hear that that was happening? I mean, obviously it was, it caused a lot of anxiety for me, but on the other hand, Thankfully, you lived the way that you did, and you had really good allies like Keith in there that I knew, or at least I convinced myself. I think in my position, there was a lot of denial throughout my prison life years because there had to be. Otherwise, honestly, I don't think I'd be able to sleep at night. So I convinced myself slash I guess knew that you would always be okay, and you did have those people that were looking out for you. But yeah, that call was petrifying. And then not only is that call petrifying, how do I relay that information to you once I have it, right? Because I can't put it in writing over email. I have to wait for the day that you call me, and then I have to somehow tell you this, but I can't say the staff member's name, and I'm glad that we couldn't even remember it. So obviously we're not that scarred by it, but like I have to give you these context clues without looking like I'm trying to be cryptic over the phone because that could cause a whole different set of issues. I mean, there's just a lot going on that you have to quickly think through when this is, kind of stuff is happening. But even like, how did that make you feel getting that information? For me, it was confirmation. Uh, uh. You know, Keith and I used to have these conversations. We would have to, you know, it was part of our strategy sessions. Like, who do we really need to look out for right now? Who's got it mm -hmm. out for us? How do we avoid them and yet continue to, to build, to grow, to foster this culture that we've created uh, and expand this space to get more people involved because that was our goal. I mean, Keith and I both think the same way. You know, when you hear people talk about, well, if I could help just one person, neither he nor I think that way. It's all about how many people can we reach, right? 
Like we've got limited time here. Like we need to have the greatest impact that we can possibly have. And how are we going to do that? So Keith, from your perspective, once you did, you know, get things, I guess, status quo for lack of a better phrase, because it was never perfect, especially with staff. But what was your greatest accomplishment during all of that? Hmm. Okay, so the first thing I'm gonna go with my intuition because there were so many accomplishments. I think that we, oh my goodness, on a personal development level, I think we accomplished things that were out of this world. But of all the things that we did, we there's a uh, national conference uh, on higher education in prison that is held annually at different locations. And I believe it was 2015, it was held at the University of Pittsburgh. And for the first time in history, especially with the Federal Bureau of Prisons, a group of us, Adam, myself, and um, three other gentlemen who were with us were actually present at that conference from inside of the prison visiting room via uh, teleconference, and that was before everybody was really um, in, uh, adapted to this whole Zoom thing that really exploded after uh, COVID came on the scene, but we had a live stream to that conference and had an opportunity to present to the outside world exactly what it was that we were doing, what our vision was, and to intellectually challenge or present an argument as to what we felt was needed for us to really and truly and honestly define success in the process of owning our narrative. And um, the audience was expansive and they were in awe of us, um, not only because of the fact that we were even present there, but the message that we had to bring. And um, that in and of itself has opened doors that I'm still walking through to this very day on this side of the fence. I was in that audience and <laughs> the you're right everybody was in awe and the chatter in the room after your presentation i mean by these higher up professors that uh what was it higher education in prisons is what they what their focus was was unbelievable and just a quick cute story is that i was warned it was myself adam's mother and um, one of the other gentlemen's girlfriend at the time in the audience, and we got there early and we were warned, like, do not even try to like say hello or make it known that you know them, who you are, right? Otherwise they can, the whole thing could get cut off within a second. So we're sitting there like trying to wave and trying to say <laughs> hi, but it was a very proud moment for us because this was a couple years in the making. They pulled the plug on you guys it, like in process in transit the year before mm -hmm. so this was huge and yeah yeah that audience was definitely in awe and i want to say the same way that you were you were warned we were threatened right? <laughs> we were just openly threatened we just legally couldn't be yeah. but yeah i think we basically were they're basically like listen we're gonna put you on camera and i swear to god if you do anything you will never see the light of day and me yeah, serving if I even think you're blinking a Morse code to the audience. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing they didn't know our Morse code. Just kidding. Absolutely. <laughs> Just kidding. The, the funny thing is that for me, there was always an additional concern about me, which I think is most ironic because I was the one serving a life sentence 
right? Like everyone else has, has a period, like there's a release date. So you're only going to be able to have, you know, your hands around that person's neck for a period of time. Then they're going to get out and they're going to be able to talk for me. Like there was no end in sight. So it could have, I'm living under the weight of you've got your hands around my neck forever. Mm. Right. Potentially. So if I make one false move, like that's going to follow me, that's going to carry and it does that has the tendency inside of our systems like when you do something that goes against staff oh god that follows you everywhere whatever they put in that record whatever the word is that that follows you along man it can make your life very very difficult so that brings a good question to my mind is you know that whole thing was successful but now here we are, Adam's a lifer. He has a 213 year sentence. Keith, you're granted a transfer to move closer to your family. Like you said earlier, you know, you're very, very close with your father who's getting up there in age. What was it like having to leave, number one, this environment, number two, one of your closest friends who has a life sentence who potentially you might never see again. What was that experience like leaving? You know, I had to give pause because I think there was a plethora of emotions. And um, I don't even know if I've ever had this conversation with Adam. Uh, it was sort of bittersweet um, in that there was a sense of, I guess, discomfort and a, a, this sense of uh, um, separation anxiety that, that took place within me as I was separating from my crew, my team, my, my brothers at that time. Um, but there was almost a secret sigh of relief that, man, you know, I can imagine being at war and, and fighting and fighting and fighting an uphill battle. And it's like, almost like you get to take a break. Mm. And the funny thing was though, that even though that thought was somewhere in my mind, I don't want to say the back, I don't want to say the front, um, but sort of lingered in the middle of my mind somewhere. Um, it was like, just as we were pre preparing to go, um, Adam came to me and, you know, he, I don't even think he understood the word stop or pause or break. And his only concern was, hey, do you have all the curriculums? Do you have everything you need? You get to go to another spot. So you can take everything we got, you can get over there and duplicate it. We can support each other via email. Uh, it, it's just like, go. It wasn't, it wasn't um, that I was getting a break. It was like I was endeavoring on a new campaign. And um, and that's what I did. I went to another location. They were not as um, open and receptive to what we had in mind. So we had to find, I had to find different ways to try to create by myself allies. And it's almost like I carried the spirit of Adam and those brothers who were still fighting the good fight where I'd left them behind with me in order to endeavor upon doing this um, on my own. And I was not um, as successful as we had been. I did make some um, uh, leeway with uh, producing some things and creating some, some space and teaching some classes and assisting, but it, it, it listen, I th it, it's almost as though like the stars just aligned when we were all together where we were and the ability to duplicate that um, from within that system is almost impossible. And 
going where I went and, and transitioning away, yes, I did get an opportunity to be closer to my family. And of course, I enjoy seeing my children more often and all of that. But also, it gave me a um, a clear vision of how big this fight that we were engaged in really was, because it was great that we were doing what we were doing where we were on that level. But that's just such a small drop in the bucket of the system impacted people who really could benefit from what we could bring to them. And now, finally, we get an opportunity to try to cultivate uh, systems and means by which to do that from this outside where nobody controls the door anymore. Nobody controls the door anymore. And people wonder why I enjoy so much going back into prison each week because I get to walk back out. There is, man, there is something to be said about that um, because we lived under that control for so long. Do you get the opportunity to go inside these days? No. Mm. Um, not yet. Okay. Let me qualify that. Um, it's definitely on the horizon. I have a few things that I'm um, that I'm working on that should grant me that those some of those opportunities really soon. But no, I have not had that opportunity. And I've thought about you and and the regularity with which you enter. And I've thought about, um, cause I want to talk about, um, I don't know if Adam and I ever talked about this, the days leading up to your release. I had a lot of conversations with Ro. Oh, I was going to bring it up. Yeah. Listen, listen, I know that to the world as Ro presents, man, she's a, a pillar of strength and dignity and all. She was a mess. Okay. <laughs> they dragged she, me through the mud. They did her. <laughs> so you want to talk about grit, ability. It's like, there's one thing to fight when you think you have a fight. But when you're fighting a fight and you're just getting demolished and beat up and dragged through the mud and you just are continuing to fight. And she showed the true power of the human spirit. Because through every denial, I could hear it in her voice. She wouldn't say it, but I could hear in her voice how it took the very wind out of her soul. But she always kept her eyes on the horizon. And um, man, I feel emotional, right? Because that it, that's, that's a big part of, of, of our story on the inside. There's no better feeling in the world than to know that you have somebody that's on your side and that is going to support you and forge forward and push and have a level of determination that cannot be deterred by by systems by families by uh peers you know i remember when i first heard the term uh the politics of shaming and knowing that um you remember one of my favorite books, Adam, was doing time on the outside. Um, there's a deep level. We, we're, we're inside, and so we, we are where we are. There's nothing we can do in that moment to change that. We have to be who we are and be where we are. But folks who are on the outside who are fighting this battle right by our side and who are choosing to fight the battle with us to get beat up and humiliated and um, ostracized and to go through all that and, and continue to fight, to choose to fight. We had to fight. Ro chose to fight. Tell us about that. That, oh, that I don't think we ever told the story about those couple of weeks 
prior to your release on the podcast. So we're going to have to do that. I'm not going to do it now because it's way too long. But <laughs> Way too long and way too emotional. I feel myself already getting emotional. I was yeah. just talking about but, this now. You know, I guess the thing that I'll say here, I have a couple of things. And I'm so glad you brought it up because I was going to. Because there was a conversation that you and I had minutes before I went to go pick up Adam that I can literally close my eyes and put myself right back into that spot. And I'll tell that in a second. But people always asked me, or a lot of people asked me, like, why, you know, you could date anybody out here, you know, you're smart, you're pretty, you're this, you're that, and you could have anybody, why would you put your life on hold for a life or in prison? I said, I wouldn't put my life on hold for just some guy, but I would put my life on hold for Adam because he's my person. And he's always, you know, every time that I felt insecure or I didn't know if I could do it anymore, unknowingly, he always reconfirmed the reason why I did it. And back to, so we had two weeks of sheer torture, even though like it's supposed to be the happiest day of my life. We, he has no more life sentence, right? That's off the table. Now he has to get resentenced. I guess people, we never really talked about that, right? It wasn't just like, oh, you're done. It's over. We'll let you out. It was the judge has to make a decision now that the life sentence is off the table. So that happened. There was a whole bunch of drama that happened around that. We didn't know if he was going to get out that day or in 10 or 20 years. We had no idea. So finally, after that whole mess a week later, there's three days they ordered him to get out. There's three days that he has to be out by, right? He, it's not just like open the door and go. You have to release him by Thursday. This is Monday or Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And then they didn't want to do it. So back and forth on the phone with his attorney, like, like again, like no attorney we'd do this with either because literally that man was on the phone. I had to have spoken to him. I'm not exaggerating 50 times in those three days, phone calls back and forth. And the best part is like, I'm on my way to pick him up. He's like, bro, turn around. And then he's like, no, wait, bro, go back. No, wait, bro, turn around. And at one point I'm like, I'm just going to keep driving. I'll just make a vacation out of this because I'm not turning around. I'm like four hours away from home at this point of a six hour drive. But anyway, finally we get the word. You can come pick him up now. Oh, and they were so nice about it. I picked up the phone. And she's like, you can come get Clawson now. And I'm on my way there. And I was in line for coffee at a place called Tim Hortons in Bradford, Pennsylvania. It's the only place you can get coffee in that little town. There's no like Starbucks or anything. And I get a call from Keith and he's like, Ro, you're going to pick up Adam. Just, just stop for a second, he said. And I want you guys to listen to this and learn a lesson from this because I could literally close my eyes. He goes, close your eyes for a second and just think about like, what do you feel right now? Where are you right now? What do you see around you right now? take a breath and just really get focused on the moment. He said, you're going to pick up Adam now. You fought for so long for this and you calmed me down, Keith, and you got me to just fixate on the moment, take a breath and really appreciate what I was doing, where I was, that fight for so long, because after fighting for so long, it's so hard to just like, like you guys said, being at war, I've never been at war, but I can only imagine to like slow yourself down and be like, it's over, right? There was no, it's over. It's like fight, 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 fight. And you got me to calm down and feel it. And I'm so grateful. That was 
the biggest gift that you've ever given me because I can put myself right back there right now and I can feel, see, and just be back in that moment, which was you know, one of the best experiences of my life after all the negative was behind us. So I don't think I've ever publicly thanked you. Thank you. And thank you for bringing it up because I just love to relive that moment. Absolutely. Thank you for all that you, um, you've you ever done because, you know, it, it's, it's it was bigger than you and Adam. You made it bigger than you and Adam. Um, it became a movement for you Yeah. Um, that you understood and, and that takes such a deep level of human understanding to understand your experience to such a degree that you say, hey, if other folks are experiencing this at the level I'm experiencing it, um, and I may have that grit ability to survive it, but if they don't, because what happens to folks that don't have grit ability? What's the story behind those folks who don't have grit ability, but are able to survive? And if you look at those narratives, it's usually some person who has enough grit ability for themselves and others and can share it. And I think that you um, exponentially shared um, that with with the world, with with this culture, with people, and have given people permission to go against the status quo, to go against the um, politics of shaming, with their their head held high and their shoulders back, and just forge forward. And um, so, you know, um, I'm I'm fighting back tears because I knew y'all was gonna do this to me today, but um, <laughs> I think we all are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's hard to find words. It, it get, you get to a point at this point in a conversation where words don't even um, give value to the feeling anymore. Yeah, and Adam said it in the very beginning of this conversation, and I was told about this for years prior to you coming home, but there are many, many instances that unless you guys lived it together, none of us will understand just like those soldiers who come back from war, there's that unspoken bond that, you know, you could just shoot each other a look and know what each other is thinking or saying or needing in that moment to get through that moment because there's a lot of trauma that you guys went through that, you know, again, as gritty people, we don't like to talk about or dwell on, but it's still there. And you still need, you know, your brothers or your brothers or sisters, whomever the person is in the moment to, to get you through. That's right. And that's a key part of, you know, gritability is not just being able to yourself endure things, you know, constantly challenging, growing. You know, we, we got into the habit of just push, 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 fight, fight, fight. But we wouldn't have been able to do that if we didn't have the support of one another. True. That's that's the key there, right? Gritability requires finding other people that have that same drive, that are willing to stand there and fight with you, that have the courage to go against all of the norms. Because what you're doing is is gonna it's gonna draw opposition because it's outside of the norm, right? And to this day, you know, whenever things, uh, whenever I'm challenged, like the first person that comes to my mind. I'm like, man, I need to reach out to, to Keith. Yeah. Outside of our conversations, of obviously at home. Um, but when I hit those situations, it's, you know, it's not like, and, and I think in life, people generally don't have those kind of supports. 
right? Um, nowadays, you hear about everybody having a coach, right? Back when we started coaching, nobody knew what coaching was, and everybody was like afraid of it. They're like, coach, what do you mean a coach? I don't need no coach. I don't need nobody to tell me what to do. But we had the opportunity to support one another, to truly be present, to listen, to help each other, you know, focus on uh, the strengths that we had, what we had accomplished, and not get caught up in all of the obstacles and all of the challenges and all of the resistance. Because as soon as you get caught in that loop, like you're going to burn out. Nobody's going to be able to sustain that. Yeah, and uh, what's funny or cute is that, remember, we had an instance recently, and I think we called to tell you, Keith, but there were these coaches that were attempting to just like off the cuff coach us for no good reason. And, you know, we were being polite and putting up with it, but I got off. uh, No, I actually was texting Adam on the side and I was like, listen, we got to get off this call because we've been coached by Keith James. Like these are subpar coaches. (laughs) We don't need to put up with this. It was just kind of a little bit of drama, but to kind of lighten the mood, you know, you have your, your coach and you have your relationship with Keith and there are very, very few people who can slow down Adam Clausen, but sometimes you need to be slowed down. And earlier, and we say, tell this story all the time. That's why I have to tell it. But earlier Keith used the term infiltrate talking about staff. And it brought me back to this story that you tell very often that I think changed your life mm-hmm. where do you want to tell it about infiltrating, you know, how you went hard at that. Yeah. That's ahead, exactly tell, yeah. the story I was thinking of. So Keith, myself and our friend Cantu, we were sitting inside. We were, we were at the Baltimore tables that day. So we're sitting there having lunch together and <laughs> We're plotting on, man, how are we going to get this class down here? We, we need to have a space and we need to have a staff person who's willing to oversee this, who's going to open the door, give us that space and, you know, sign off on this. And I'm like, I'm not giving up this day. Like, we've got a plan. I'm going to make sure that it happens. And I look out the window and here is this doctor. She's a psychologist, right? And she's like three feet tall, you know beautiful little woman, very nice. She had expressed her support. She's in the psychology department. We're thinking this is like right online with, you know, what we're seeking to promote here. She would be fully supportive and she had expressed support. So in my mind, you know, I got locked in, just like Keith said, put the blinders on and I just went. I'm like, (laughs) I'm going to go get her to agree to have this class over in psychology this afternoon. Mm -hmm. Like it's going to happen. I got this. And the two of them are like, whoa, 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 whoa. And I'm like, no, I got it. And I'm out the door, literally up out the door. And because we could see her out the window and they're all standing, all staff are lined up basically just along this walkway. And ideally you're supposed to be able to walk up to them, engage them, like if you have any questions, but they're really not open to that level of engagement, right? Being charged at? that level <laughs> well they definitely weren't open to that i just like i'm tunnel vision and i'm going straight at this woman and i'm not paying attention to the other officers who are like kind of looking like what's happening here to the look on her face when she first sees me like oh and then she's like wait a minute like whoa <laughs> i'm not reading any of the cues like 
I, I find this out later and I just go straight out or I'm like, Hey doc, this is what I need. And again, I forget that I'm, you know, six, three, I'm not a small guy. She is a very small petite woman. So I am talking down to her and my mindset at this point is to view everyone on an equal level so that no authority figures are above us. So my shift in mindset is that we're all on this even plane. But believe me, they don't see us the same way. Staff is still seeing themselves as being up here and being able to talk down to us. So they're watching me talk down to this woman. And it's like, I, I am absolutely killing it. Like all wrong. It's going downhill quick. And this woman is like, she's frazzled and I don't understand what's going on. And she won't agree to this. And I get frustrated and I wind up kind of walking off. So Keith and Cantu come up to me afterwards. They're like, that was crazy. They were like, what were you thinking? Keith, what's your, what's your version of that? Like, what was your perspective while this was happening? So two things. One, um, this was sort of repetitive. <laughs> the face. With Adam. And when Adam tells you, that, and I like that he expressed his mindset, you know, we always say mindset is causative. And his mindset was everybody is my equal. He did not care if you were the warden, you were a regional director. It, it, all he needed was an opportunity and he was coming. And sometimes we would try our best to say, you know, hold up, maybe not, but no, nah, there was no deterring him. When he was locked and loaded, he was locked and loaded. And he was going at all costs to make it happen. And it, it just came a point where you learn. Sometimes you could talk some sense into him, but then it was his times. He had this look in his eyes and you just knew like it, it would be a futile, futile attempt to even um, try to talk him down or talk him away from his mission. So it was like, you gotta just do damage control. You let him go. I get it. You kind of <laughs> hang in the wing because- <laughs> I get it. <laughs> Uh, He's just hanging the wing. If it, if it, if look, and here's the funny thing because if you see it's going well, then you run over and support him, right? <laughs> <laughs> yep. And if you see it's going wrong, you got to be prepared for anything, uh, whatever direction it may go in. If it's being prepared to defend him, um, or being prepared to um, help him to to sort of brush the dust off, because. It, when it didn't go the way he wanted it to go, it never made sense to him. You know, he's like, how, how could they not understand what I'm telling them? It's, it's not, everyone should understand this, you know, and and it would hurt him. And, and he's had so many, uh, we've had, but I, I say he because I feel like the some of the um, rejections, um, you could just see, and, you know, Adam has a thing about posture. And so to see his shoulders drop, really said something and there were a few times where you saw that um but in form of true grit ability they didn't stay down long you know he would think about it he would process it but he wasn't processing his pain uh i think adam always processes what did i do wrong and i gotta go again i gotta do something different this time he was gonna he was he was preparing another plan on how to attack um, with a new strategy at all times. And I think, well, you, you, you live with him. Uh, so you see it every day. Um, that, that's how he lives his life. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. 
No. I I do. And I think, like I said earlier, there are very few people that can slow him down. And I think you and I are two of the very, very few. But I think a lesson that we can all learn from this is what you said about Adam sees everybody on an equal playing field. And I think that serves you really well because you can walk in a room and people think you're a politician because you know, very often I'll walk in a room and I'll start rating people and I'll feel inferior to certain people. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't serve me well because I can't walk up to just any, or I don't feel like I can just walk up to anybody and have a conversation or pitch a business idea. It never hinders you. So I think that's a lesson everyone can take from there. As long as you present yourself, you know, not by charging a cop that you, when you're an inmate, but yeah, but I have to answer this too. Um, there's two sides to that coin of seeing everybody on, on an equal level as himself, because just as much as that may compel him to approach individuals um, that others may not feel that they are equal to, it also gives him a sense of humility that I've witnessed that um, a, a homeless person on the street, I could, you, you could see Adam sitting and engaging with them and conversing with them. Um, so the ability to see everyone from the point of the human spirit or that that golden thread that ties all human beings together, it does compel him upward, but it humbles him downward as well. Absolutely. Here's a really beautiful, quick story. We were down on Fremont Street not too long ago, and Adam is a very analytical, organized person not only in his brain, but it shows outwardly in his life. Everything's very organized. And there was this homeless man who was pulling a carriage and uh, he had these blankets and all of his blankets were folded so perfectly and laid on top of one another so perfectly. It was like a beautiful aesthetic, right? Even though the man was homeless, it was just this picture. And he stopped and he um, asked Adam for some money and Adam pulled out his wallet and he gave him some money. And the man said to him, it's really embarrassing to be homeless. And Adam, you know, touched his shoulder and he said, I know. He said, have a good day. And you, the reason I brought out the blankets is because you said that's what made you notice him. But yeah, that's, I think that just paints the picture of the type of person that you are. Mm. Well, and I think it's from my experience, you know, the reason I am the way that I am today is because of what we endured and the same you know, um, that was shown to me and having individuals like, like Keith around me to give me that honest feedback that I needed is the only way that I was able to continue to grow and evolve. And how crazy is it that you find, um, yourself in prison, like finally being willing to open up and to leave yourself bare Right. And I felt that I could do that with with Keith specifically and, you know, a few others who were part of that group. But I would ask Keith, you know, like, how do I get better at this? Like what where am I falling short? What am I doing? I'm going to say there are very few people in life who are willing to open up and do that because that's like it's leaving yourself vulnerable. But most people are like just going to be brutal with you. I knew that it was always coming from a place of care, concern, like just genuine wanting to, to help me and support me. And every time I did that, Keith gave me honest feedback, right? And it was like that situation with 
the woman, the, the doctor that I went, I drove straight on her hard after the fact, you know, I didn't want to hear that I had made her uncomfortable. And he's like, no, no, you frightened that woman. He's like, (laughs) (laughs) and if it was coming from somebody else that I wasn't willing to open up and, and, and just be completely transparent and vulnerable with, I probably, I would have fought against that. But when he said it, I was like, no, I didn't want to feel like I frightened her, but he's telling me this. So man, I need to pause. I need to think about this. I'm like, okay, tell me more. Tell me more about this. And each time I did that, each time Keith shared something with me, man, it was so beneficial for me to hear that, to acknowledge it, and to then be able to take action that helped to move me forward. And that's why I say, I, you know, I wouldn't be the person I am today without Keith's support. And that's where I think you need to go out and find those people who will be honest with you and direct with you and maybe wrap it up in a little bit of love because to this day you come home many times after a meeting where there's politicians or people in there that you need to address and you're going in with an agenda and you can go in hard. You tell me every single time that you think back to that moment and Keith's words back to you and you take a step back and you breathe and you pause and you smile and then you go. As we're wrapping things up here, looking forward, we always wanna make sure that we're looking ahead What's on the horizon? Keith, what's next for you? How are you going to demonstrate more of your grit ability? Well, um, man, in in many ways, I'm involved and connected to um, quite a few projects. And so grit ability has become sort of a different um, monster for me. I believe that experiencing what we experienced together and succeeding in the ways that we succeeded against the insurmountable or seemingly insurmountable odds created this mindset and attitude that perpetuated in me this energy to never say no. And even though I know in all of our teachings and studies that we we learned about boundaries and um, self-care and... um, so going forward, for me, what has been happening, and I just want to share this thought, um, I, I reached maybe in the middle of last year a point of burnout. I came and I hit the ground with my feet moving before they even touched the ground. And I took on every challenge, every opportunity. I threw it on my plate because this is me. And I had been with Adam and we had we had conquered and we had done and there's nothing um, that we cannot conquer and there's nothing we cannot do. And and I put so much on my plate and, and I was so successful, repetitively successful, successful, successful. My career began to catapult all these things that I'm doing, um, but I forgot about me. And so I'm endeavoring on this, this new campaign because I feel, and this is a, something personal, and this is probably the first time I'm sharing this with you, especially working in the mental health field. I'm, I'm, I've learned so much. My career has grown, but my, um, my, my, breadth of knowledge and information has increased so exponentially in really understanding human behavior. And I just want to make sure that as um, individuals are transitioning, as we've transitioned, that they are being very careful, very conscious, and very mindful of um, self-care on a mental health level. And 
I want to have some projects and some initiatives in place where I really want to take the um, the stigma away from um, mental health therapy and uh, remove the this taboo that I think, especially men, that we have about um, seeing a therapist, about reaching out and getting help when it's needed. Because in all honesty, though we may not have been licensed, we served as therapists for each other. There were moments in times where things got very tough and um, <laughs> we had to walk the yard. And, you know, and that's a term that I think only Adam and those people who have experienced could truly understand because taking that walk on a yard was like a therapy session. And a lot of people don't know this, but they do not provide talk therapy in prison settings. As valuable, as important, as helpful as it would be to be able to sit with someone in a therapeutic conversation and explore and get some things off your chest, that's one thing that they do not provide. And so for, um, us to be able to provide that for one another and to know how beneficial that was to my life, how some of those conversations really sustained me and helped me to dig deeper inside myself to find the grit ability um, that I needed to be able to survive, to move forward, to keep forging on. Um, I just wanna be, and I'm happy to be a big part of the systems out here that uh, creates that sacred space and those platforms for people to be able to um, just to be better, to be healthy, to live life in a way that happiness is the order of the day, to learn to live from the inside out and not vice versa. Because if you allow external influence and stimuli to determine who you are and what you are, then you're doomed and your life is at the, um, at the hands of everybody else around you. So, mm. And I know I didn't answer your question and I'm comfortable with that too. <laughs> I just, my takeaway is learn to live from the inside out. I love that. Very true. And we are here. We love you. We appreciate you. We are so happy that you were able to spend some time with us. This has been another incredible podcast of Gritability. Uh, I'm your podcast host, Adam Clausen. And I'm Ro Clausen. And thank you, Mr. Keith James. We will see you all back here on the next episode of Gridability. Thank you all so much. I love you.